Welcome to Innovating Clinical Trials, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists' Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Until recently, the model used for traditional randomized clinical trials has not changed since it was first introduced in 1948. Now, transformation is underway. Speed and efficiency need to improve as many patients cannot wait over a decade for new, potentially life-saving medicines. And trial participants need to better reflect the whole patient population. Because clinical trials are complex and multidisciplinary, there is not a single, simple solution. What does innovation in clinical trials look like? In this series, host Rob Lenz, Amgen's Senior Vice President of Global Development and experts leading next-generation clinical trials, explore trends and drivers in design and execution to improve trial quality and safety, decrease costs, and improve predictability, reliability, and speed. The questions scientists face in clinical development are very similar to the questions that doctors face when treating patients. Patients want to know whether their disease is going to go away or worsen, or whether they'll benefit from a therapy. Doctors generally can only share with the patient what the typical or average effect of a medicine is, but they can't specifically address the potential benefit or harm in that specific patient. Now with advances in genetics and other human data, researchers and doctors will one day be able to practice true precision medicine. And this inability to predict how a patient will respond to a medicine is even more challenging in underrepresented patients because we often don't have the information because those patients were not included in the clinical trials. This is due in part to systemic issues that deter people from participating in research, especially those who have been historically excluded due to factors such as race, ethnicity, sex, and age. In this episode, I talked to Panamotsepe Dicero, Vice President of Global Medical Therapeutic Area Head, in general medicine at Amgen about the recognized differences in disease incidence among racial and ethnic groups and new approaches to increase representation in clinical trials. Now, the benefits are myriad for patients and for drug developers, and many of us view the inclusion of underrepresented patients in our trials as not only a scientific necessity, but an ethical imperative. Hey, Panda. I know that improving diversity in clinical trials has been a passion of yours. Maybe you can share a little bit on your background, including your background as a medical doctor, and how that shaped that passion that you have. Sure. Thanks, Rob. I am an MD qualified in South Africa, and I've lived and worked on three continents and in four different countries throughout my time in industry as well as a clinical practitioner. As a native of South Africa and a Black woman who's now living in the U.S., I've really witnessed firsthand how equality and equity hasn't always been present for a lot of people. And disparities in health are a major example of this, especially for chronic diseases. This persists among different communities, which really highlights the health equity is a global issue. At Amgen, I love working as the global Vice President of the General Medicine Therapeutic Area, where I oversee work done in cardiovascular disease, lupus, obesity, osteoporosis, among others, where we often see racial and ethnic disparities in incidence and prevalence of diseases. 
But most importantly, I'm also really excited about the work that I'm leading with our team called RISE, which stands for Representation and Clinical Research. This team is dedicated to improving diversity and representation of participants in our clinical trials, especially for those who've been historically excluded from research. Since the inception of the modern clinical trial about 70 years ago, the general approach has been to study a drug in a relatively small but very homogeneous population of patients with a particular disease to get a very precise estimate of the treatment effect, or the efficacy, as well as the safety in that discrete population. And then basically make a giant leap of faith assumption, which is that the medicine will behave the same in other populations that weren't included in that trial. So generalizing the results to patients of say, different age or different genders or different ethnic groups. But we now know that's not always true. Now, I was fortunate to have been trained by Elijah Saunders, who, in addition to being the first black cardiologist to practice in the state of Maryland, was really a visionary in identifying differences in treatment responses in black versus non-black individuals. And he taught me very early on in medical school that black patients respond differently to the various antihypertensive medicines that were available. Now, fast forward 30 years to today, and we still find ourselves in this reality where more times than not, we're missing critical information on the safety and efficacy of medicines in these underrepresented populations. In 2018, the Census Bureau Populations Estimate reported that Non-Hispanic white Americans represent about 61% of the U.S. population, but they comprise more than 90% of the population in clinical trials. So, Panda, can you give us a bit of an overview? You know, how did we get here? Why do clinical trials continue to have a diversity and representation issue? There are a couple of reasons for this. The first one is that there have been several historic events in many countries, including the U.S., that have really shaped the relationship communities of color have with medical research, as well as the healthcare system. That's led to, unfortunately, quite a lasting mistrust of both systems and has impacted on how they approach the healthcare system. I think institutional and structural racism, both explicit and implicit, is a huge factor. We know that biases among healthcare providers lead them to overestimate sometimes the level of distrust of the medical system by people of color. And that leads them to communicate less with their patients from those communities about participating in clinical trials. There's institutional biases that can also lead to study designs and eligibility criteria that disproportionately exclude people of color. So there's multiple things, as well as lack of trial availability at hospital systems where people of color get their care. There's often lack of community engagement. All of these factors, in my opinion, have led to less participation in clinical trials. This is why it's so critical to also address social determinants of health, which includes factors like racism, socioeconomic status, education, and the environment when we address health disparities. We know that social and economic factors drive an estimate of 40% of health outcomes. This is twice as influential as factors related to clinical care. I might just add one additional to the list that you highlighted. Oftentimes, we lack the epidemiologic data of diseases to understand if there's differences in those diseases 
in certain populations. And we certainly very often lack the biological understanding as to whether there are differences in, say, how a black patient versus a Caucasian patient might be expected to respond to therapy. For instance, are there different biological or genetic underpinnings of the disease in different populations? What are some of the things that are happening across the clinical trial ecosystem to address some of these foundational problems? There's a strong acknowledgement that this is a topic that must be addressed with a sense of urgency. And I believe there's a strong desire to work together as industry or the entire healthcare ecosystem to address the health inequity that we're seeing. We're starting to make really great strides. What I'm seeing is industry striving to partner with more clinical trial investigators. I see some initiatives to bring awareness to disparities in health and what we can do about them. I see many peer companies serving on multiple cross-industry collaborations with other sponsor companies that also include patients, providers, payers, legislators, manufacturers, academia, and others to really find impactful, sustainable solutions to address these healthcare disparities. The other thing that we're doing that's really important is supporting STEM education for underserved communities, championing the work of organizations who are already invested in addressing social determinants of health, including community organizations, minority-serving institutions like historically Black colleges and universities. Maybe one would argue that what happened with COVID-19, particularly to communities of color, underrepresented communities, has really sparked the need to, first of all, have these conversations cross-industry and be really clear that this work is mission-critical and it's time to move the needle now. We've now created a team called RISE, which really grew out of grassroots efforts of like-minded Amgen colleagues under the umbrella of an employee resource group called ABIN, which stands for Amgen's Black Employee Network. We took a group of cross-functional experts who had a passion for change, an employee resource group that incubated an idea to become a reality. You made it clear that this is going to require a comprehensive approach um, and, and will certainly require tremendous effort. At the risk of sounding overly daunting, are there particular diseases one could focus on that are disproportionately uh, impacting minority communities where you think that uh, a particular focus could have a positive impact? Cardiovascular disease is one area that we should focus on. We know that nearly half of all American men and women have some form of heart disease, but Black Americans are 32% more likely to die from cardiovascular disease. There's clearly a need to make a difference in this patient population. The other population I would think of is diabetes, which has a very close link to cardiovascular disease. 13% of the general adult population in the U.S. have diabetes. We know that American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, Black, and Hispanic people are all at much higher risk of developing diabetes than the white population in the United States. Their rate is significantly higher. It's almost 15%. And then also autoimmune disease. If we look at lupus, we know that the prevalence varies from about 20 to 150 cases per 100,000. And there's higher rates in minority populations, such as Black, Hispanic, and Asians. We also know that systemic lupus erythematous disproportionately affects women of childbearing age with a higher incidence in blacks versus white females. 
So again, racial and ethnic minorities are at higher risk for developing this disease. Asthma is another condition. 8.3% of Americans have asthma, but we know that Black and African American, as well as Hispanics, have two times more of a likelihood to suffer from severe asthma. And Black Americans are three times more likely to die from asthma. And then if you factor in sex, Black women have an even higher rate. When it comes to cancer among males, incidence and death rates are higher among non-Hispanic Blacks than non-Hispanic whites for all cancers combined. Black or African Americans are twice as likely as white Americans to develop a multiple myeloma. These conditions that I've just described is where we should be focusing on because we need to ensure that the medicines we develop are based on clinical research populations that are proportional to the real-world setting and that we're co-creating solutions to health inequities with the needs of patients and their communities at the very center of everything that we do. We're in an era of really unprecedented access to data and advanced analytics. How can we better use more comprehensively various human data to inform us in how we develop our, our therapies, you know, things like identifying patients to potentially participate in our clinical trials, to those that are most likely to respond to our therapies and derive benefit. We can ensure that we have access to consistent current patient demographic data via collaborations and, and partnerships with key organizations working to improve our study feasibility and landscaping processes so that the data is collected and analyzed with racial and ethnic considerations by default. The other thing is encouraging the diversification and greater inclusiveness of biobanks, which eventually informs a wide range of research with their samples and data. But unfortunately, we know that they have historically been excluded from multiple communities including racial and ethnic minority groups. So, so there's an opportunity for us to continue to increase our diversity in terms of our biobanks and genomic research. The other thing is identifying clinical trial sites that have high potential capacity to enroll patients from our target racial and ethnic minority communities and finding the clinical trial investigators who are like-minded as well. Collecting not just disease descriptors, but genetic data can also help identify new patients. And we're looking at using different type of omics to identify those potentially new targets. Yeah, I think there's also potential opportunity once one collects phenotypic and the genomic data to potentially identify new targets for disease by increasing the diversity of the populations that we study. Almost certainly there'll, there'll be identification of increased genetic diversity underlying the diseases. And so another real opportunity for target identification. Absolutely. You mentioned the prevalence of cardiovascular disease in African-Americans. One of the emerging risk factors in atherosclerotic heart disease is a lipoprotein called LP little a, which is a relatively well-studied subspecies of LDL cholesterol. Interesting risk factor because um, one's levels are almost entirely genetically determined. So you know, your diet, your lifestyle, things like exercise really have little to no impact on the levels of LP little a. And we don't have any therapies today that address this. One thing that's been interesting is that the studies that we do have have pretty consistently shown race-based differences. Curious to kind of get your thoughts around what you think the significance of this is 
as it relates to developing a potential therapeutic? I think it's absolutely significant and absolutely important. The risk factors that contribute to this from what we're seeing and understanding disproportionately higher in African-Americans and probably even in women. 1.4 billion people globally have elevated LP little a levels of more than 50. And we know that elevated LP little a, as you mentioned, is associated with various disease states, including coronary heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, stroke, and, and heart failure. And there are differences in expression among people of different races as African as well as South Asian individuals generally have a higher level of LP little a. I think it's really critical that we continue to, to study LP little a lowering therapies, especially in a racially and ethnically representative population of patients to ensure that we're truly collecting a complete profile of safety and efficacy data in this population. It's incumbent on society to understand this predominantly controlled by genetics, LP little a has a disproportionate higher incidence within African-Americans and South Asians. It's interesting that African and South Asian individuals have, on average, higher levels of LP little a. We don't understand yet whether or not that confers, say, greater risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. It's an important question that can be addressed in part through things like observational studies that can attempt to understand initially the association between LP little a and risk in the African populations and then try to attribute some causal association there as well. These types of dedicated studies within you know, the underrepresented populations in particular are really critical to gaining that foundational understanding of diseases and then linking the underlying biology to diseases in more diverse populations. So we can be armed with those insights going into our interventional trials rather than historically what we've done is either go in blind or simply don't collect sufficient information within the actual clinical trial to assess the, the, those populations. Maybe you can comment on what role the biopharmaceutical industry has here. Do you think that we as an industry have an important role? We are part of this ecosystem and we have a very important role to play. There's a couple of things that we are starting to do actually to address this. Working to identify diverse investigators and collaborating with those who serve diverse patients, that is a big issue and there's opportunities to work across the different stakeholders within the industry. One of the things that I've also seen is a huge opportunity for collaborating with nonprofits in communities that can help remove those barriers to participation in clinical trials. There is a long history of working with our communities to address mistrust. At Amgen, we've focused on improving patient enrollment and retention and with minority participation in oncology trials. As an industry, we could look at partnering with influential community leaders to address the issue of regaining trust. Communication and information sharing are really fundamental to driving change. We have to do this with humility and community collaboration. I really believe that it's a key to genuine impact and sustainability. The notion of lack of trust seems very foundational. What are some of those intermediate signals that we're making progress there? We have community advisory boards providing a platform where you have members of the community, patients, healthcare professionals, 
different stakeholders, being able to sit and have a conversation where they're being heard. That's been a very big and humbling experience. I don't think we'll be able to overcome the issue of mistrust overnight by having these opportunities to engage, providing a platform where communities can engage with us, having a true plan, shared decision-making on improving diversity in clinical trials, having those opportunities to the sponsors to come in with, I want to listen, I want to understand, I want to meet you where you're at and, and not have the expectation of you meeting me where I am at. Those are opportunities that can show some level of success in the future. Our trials tend to be very burdensome to patients. One could argue that the onus that it puts on study subjects may disproportionately impact lower income individuals who don't have the means to take off days from work or the flexibility. So in those community advisory boards, have you heard some practical input and advice that we could be implementing? There's opportunities to optimize decentralizing clinical trials as part of a solution for communities. I think that communities feel that they want to not just be told, here's a protocol, but they want to be part of providing input into both the protocol or even the design of the study. There's also opportunities to provide protocols that are more friendly from a language perspective. And I know that there are different efforts to continue to simplify the language, making it more palatable for patients to be able to understand so that they want to participate in clinical trials. We as an industry need to make sure we're listening and actually taking what we're hearing and implement these changes. I think it's absolutely critical to help expand and drive ultimately the participation of more diverse and underrepresented populations in our trials. It simply has to just be easier for them to participate. One area that we haven't touched on yet is the FDA and the role that they're playing. They've become, I think, quite vocal around the need to increase diversity in, in trials. They've created a diversity in clinical trials initiative that's aimed at some of the things you were mentioning at the public education to address some of the the barriers preventing diverse groups from participating in clinical trials. Recently, they released a draft guidance that recommends sponsors submit what's called a race and ethnicity diversity plan to the agency pretty early on in clinical development, and they provided a framework that's outlined within the guidance. I think it's fair to say that's also helping to focus sponsors across the industry on ensuring there are robust plans in place. Have those been helpful in stimulating some of those efforts across the industry? I would say absolutely, Rob. The FDA's most recent updates and efforts is really providing teeth. Here at Amgen, we've had the opportunity to help our clinical trial program leads and teams with the diversity plans that are being requested. The regulatory piece provides us with more strength to ensure that this time around, we really, really make a change. I welcome all the efforts that we're hearing from other industry bodies who are working to change the the landscape and ensure that we have better representation of underrepresented groups. So Panda, it's clear we have our work cut out for us, but this is quite simply something that 
needs to be improved. And having somebody like you who is not only thoughtful about the approach, but really passionate about it, certainly gives me tremendous hope. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to Innovating Clinical Trials. And thanks again to Panda Motsepe Ditseho, Vice President and Global Medical Therapeutic Area Head at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Innovating Clinical Trials Q&A webinar discussion on September 28, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. For cancer patients, time is of the essence. In the next episode of Innovating Clinical Trials, we'll talk with David Rabin, Amgen's Vice President of Global Development Oncology, about strategies to speed up clinical trials and make new medicines available sooner. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.